My name is Nicola and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this podcast, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. Number one is you can simply go and write a brief review on iTunes. That would really help me a lot. And number two is you can make a donation by going to interviewthefuture.com. Today, my guest on the show is Dr. Gus Hussein. Uh, by the way, Gus, did I just pronounce your name right? You totally did. That's great. Gus Hossein. Perfect. Dr. Hossein is the executive director of Privacy International. So today, uh, the main topic of our discussion will be privacy, but also we will touch on other issues such as big tech, monopoly, censorship, encryption, and so on and so on. So without further ado, Gus, welcome to Singularity FM. Thank you for having me. It's it's an honor to be here. Fantastic. And believe me, the honor is entirely mine. So, Gus, let's start, first of all, by you telling us in a sentence or two, perhaps, who is Gus Hussein? Um, so, I'm somebody who just spilled a lot of water on the floor. Uh, I... Uh, what gets me out of bed every morning is trying to figure out the 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 role that technology plays in our lives and into the future. It's fundamentally that. It, 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 one moment in time, it could be about politics. The next moment in time, it could be about commerce. The next moment in time might be about culture. But I just love the questions around technology and our lives. Well, that's a very interesting question for sure. And we'll be diving deeper into that question. But I wonder what does this question say about who you are? Ah, well, well it says everything about me in the sense that... Um, I am um, a, a failed mathematician. Uh, I grew up in, um, although I'm American, I grew up in Canada and was, uh, did a, a math degree at the University of Waterloo. That's where I learned about encryption. That's where I learned about differential uh, calculus and all those other things. And then I realized that my path was more in the, the policy side of these things. And so I grew up uh, around the first era of the crypto wars about the regulation of cryptography. And I realized that I wanted to fight the the policy war, having an understanding of how the technology and, and the math and the arts of uh, cryptography worked. And so that's when um, I moved to London, England. And the, the, within days of moving here, I ran into PI and I've been with PI off and on um, since. So that would make it, what, 20 some years? 20 some years, yeah, 24 years um, with a few, you know, a little bit of moving around in the middle where I worked for the ACLU. I was an academic for a while, um, but uh, fundamentally just been involved in this tech and the future question since, yeah, since my math days. Wow. So, so I knew you had a Canadian connection somewhere there just because I watched a video of you somewhere where you were saying Toronto rather than Toronto. So I was like, ha ha, he's already been there. He knows all about that stuff. So, so which part of the States are you from and how you end up in Canada? So I was born in uh, Connecticut. And uh, then after a while there, my parents moved to Edmonton first and then to Toronto. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's where I, I went to, um, high school and then eventually university of Waterloo. But yeah, the moment I finished my math degree, 
uh, I ran running, running from the Faculty of Mathematics all the way across the pond to London, where I went to the LSE to study. What Sorry, the you... London School of Economics. Oh, so so you did your PhD in LSE? Yeah, yeah, and I taught at the LSE for about uh, ten years. You taught there. Yeah. What was your PhD about? Yeah, but see, that's the thing. That's um, that's why. Your your request for a one sentence answer essentially summed it all up. My my PhD itself was on uh, cryptography policy, um, essentially trying to look at how governments were trying to regulate um, a technology and they treat it like it was a technology, a specific thing. Um, and so I looked at the from a social sciences perspective, but also from a technological perspective and from a legal perspective, how governments tried and how companies and developers and other actors responded very well so uh that kind of reminds me you know i i almost went to the lse myself uh after my undergrad at the university of toronto i was accepted to a few um university uh norman patterson in ottawa York University here and also the LSE to do a master's in international relations. So me and my oh, wife actually spent about a week in London, sort of like checking out the school, checking out the residence, sort of looking around, making a plan because we were dating at the time, but the idea was that if I'm going there, then she was going to come along with me and sort of kind of like, we didn't want to part. We, we just wanted to stay together. But you know, for, for a number of reasons, after spending about a week there, I decided it, it was also going to be kind of almost prohibitively expensive for me. Yeah. It was going to cost me something like 24, 25,000 pounds, which in Canadian dollars at the time was two to one. So it was almost like 50,000 uh, Canadian dollars for basically 12 months, yeah. uh, which was going to be uh, not quite double, but, uh, you know, 30, 50% more expensive than my whole undergraduate in, in, in <laughs> UFT. And so for that, among other reasons, I decided to come back to uh, York University. <laughs> ah, well, that's a good school too. Yeah, I I, I got totally lucky. Um, and I don't know how old you are, but um, I came over and got involved in this field at a time where anybody could. And because there, all you need was a little bit of knowledge uh, and a little bit of gumption and you could do things. And so, um, you know, as I said, within days of arriving in London, I ran into the PI crew and started working at Privacy International, working while I was volunteering, essentially. Um, and then similarly at the LSC, it became clear that the LSC was in its earliest stages of trying to understand tech and its its role in policymaking. They were always looking at uh, tech and business, but not necessarily in the real world. And so just because I had the ambition and the interest, I uh, they, they quickly allowed me to start lecturing. Um, and they quickly allowed me to start, um, well, to essentially become a fellow uh, and to lead research projects and all these other things. And it this type of career path doesn't exist anymore. It's like a PI now where we have uh, about 26 members of staff. And um, when you go through the recruitment process, I just look at the caliber of these people. And I just think I wouldn't have made it this far in a recruitment process. But, but just because at that time in the 1990s, um, it was just so much well, easier. Yeah, time, luck, and what the Stoics call fate 
uh, often in, in a stoic sense, I mean, um, the, the Romans actually had this expression, I forget if it's Seneca, amor fati, which is kind of loving fate. Uh, so not just accepting it, but actually loving it. Um, and, and they have even this kind of expression that you have two options. Basically, fate is like being a, a dog that's strapped to a little car to a carriage, to a horse-drawn carriage or an oxen carriage. So you can just bark your head off and, and try and pull as much as you can. You're gonna still get pulled along the 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 route of the of the carriage that you're strapped to. Or you can simply get along with it and try to make the best of it. Either way, you're gonna go in that direction. Uh, so that's at least from the stoic perspective. And and, and from their I point of view, the best that. you can do is kind of loving it uh, rather than fighting it. Uh, so even if you're dealt not a perfect hand, you can still love your hand and play it in the best way possible, despite the fact that it may not be the hand that you wanted. Because the reality, according to them, is that you're just an actor in somebody else's play and the roles are not being assigned to you by yourself, but by the director, whether it's nature or God or somebody else. And therefore, the only freedom you have is like playing your role in the best way possible. <laughs> That's incredible. I really, really like that. And just as you're talking, I'm just reflecting and reflecting in all these different directions. Because I've, I've always, I've never been a big fan of the of the concept of fate. Um, but equally, I can't deny that there are there are times where you put it as being a dog on a on a cart, where the Romans put it at, as that. But for me, it's almost like um, like a key in a in a mechanism when I'm in in a in a in a zone, and when I'm doing something, I feel like okay, the things around me feel like they fit. Um, and I'm very fortunate when I have that feeling. I just feel like, um, and I did some reading and like, this is like what, what, um, uh, athletes call being in the zone. Um, I feel that sense occasionally, but there's also those times where you feel completely out of your element thinking <laughs> if only I'd taken the other path. Um, and, uh, and uh, again, having been a, a computer science and mathematics, uh, oriented person in the 1990s, the path of a lot of my my friends and uh, fellow travelers, they basically got into the dot coms. They got into the tech industry and they, they have paths that are full of glory of their own rights. Um, I, I don't, I never would have survived that route. Um, but, but it's funny I'm, how either of those directions can turn on a dime. And, and sometimes what looks like an insignificant event in one's life and then you end up going in a completely different direction than you originally thought. For example, everyone who knew me in high school and even when I was in the army, because uh, I grew up in Bulgaria and once you hit 18 or 19, you have to go to the army or you go to jail, um, basically thought that I'll be a lawyer because they everyone just thought I'd, I'd make a perfect lawyer, including myself, by the way, right? Then uh, I came, first I went to the States, I came to Canada and I started doing political science, philosophy and economics. And I thought I'd be an academic, an academic doing research in uh, political science and more specifically armed conflict. So to me, at that time, 
all the technology I was interested in was technology related to killing people, to war, <laughs> to violence, uh, including that was going to be the topic of my study in uh, London School of Economics. And then eventually around 2004 or so, while doing research on the same exact topic at York University, I started getting my attention to artificial intelligence, transhumanism, technology in general, ethics in general, even more so, and somehow ended up being where I am today. Due to a number of crazy, due to also the fact that after I graduated, I couldn't find a job because I graduated in 2008 at the peak of the recession and I stopped counting after 300 resumes. No one even, I had one interview, which must have gone horribly wrong because they never called me afterwards, but that was the best I could get to. And so then I was kind of forced to reinvent myself in a way saying like, uh, well, uh, you know, one of the applications I sent out was for a staff writer at another blog called Singularity Hub, which was on the topic of, uh, you know, the technological singularity AI at transhumanism. And I thought I'm perfect for them. I did my master's on that topic. They should be, you know, so happy to have me. They never responded to me. And and then eventually a week or two later after it occurred to me that they're not calling either, I thought to myself, well, maybe I don't need them. Maybe I can just start on my own. Wow. And then here we are today. And so there was never like a grand plan. There was just like a series of small steps in a haphazard kind of way. Each step along the way, I had a different idea as per the direction that I'm going kind of. And I ended up in a different place or direction. And I'm quite That's happy where I am today, actually. I, I think I would have regretted in so many ways if I had gone to the LSE, for example. But yeah. Well, you'd still be paying off the debt. You know? Probably. <laughs> Extraordinarily expensive, as you say. Yeah. And that's just the MA. If I had stayed longer afterwards, it would have been even worse, right? So, yeah. But anyway, let's go on topic here. So... Tell us about what is Privacy International? The, the, I pause because there's an on-brand, pro-forma, um, funder-ready explanation as to what we do. Um, and anybody going to our website can see that because we worked really hard in getting the right, concise uh, response to that. But for me... For me, is that there are extraordinary forces at play in the world right now. Um, and we are learning anew how to hold those forces to account. And I don't think the traditional structures we've had to date for the, say, the past hundred years um, naturally know what to do. And so somebody has to exist to to essentially marshal the right forces, channel um, concern and attention, and poke these large bodies in the eyes occasionally. And that's PI. It's, yeah, we are a registered charity. Um, we, we live off the kindness of others. We have incredible staff who do such good work um, across the world and work with partners in numerous countries. But fundamentally, what sets us apart from others, such as the, the, the 
grand and extraordinary human rights organizations, or from the academics who do such thoughtful analyses, or the the uh, the luminaries who try to imagine what the future looks like. PIs just dealing with the way things are now, what is lacking, and tries to find. He can call it the Gordian knot, I guess, but the occasional way to poke to make sure that when things fall, they fall into place. That's very interesting. You know, I just uh, finished interviewing Kim Stanley Robinson on his latest book called The Ministry for the Future. I've started reading it. Oh, wow. That must have been one hell of a podcast. And, and you know, the funny part is that uh, before him, I interviewed Maria Farrell, who is the reason why we're talking here today to begin with. She's and awesome. his main protagonist in his book is called Maria too, or Mary, to be honest. Uh, But anyway, when I was reading his book, first of all, I thought that Maria is like the perfect real-world embodiment of his protagonist. And secondly, now when you're describing P.I., uh, I was thinking about the Ministry for the Future, and I was thinking, in a way, you're like kind of like the Ministry for Privacy. Kind of like that. That's what what it sounded to me. yeah, it's it is it, it's interesting the way you put it because like a lot of what a lot of the guilt that drives me um, is uh, in in a more noble sense is I don't want to look back in, in five years wondering what we as society could have done better to avoid problems, but equally I've been following this sector for going on twenty five years, and. I know so many times along the way, if only we could have done something, then we wouldn't have some of the problems we have today. It's 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 a, it's a lot of guilt, um, but it's also a motivating frustration. Well, and knowing that you've you've seen so many times how the cards fall and how and you see a politician or you see an industry leader or you see uh, a fan of uh, of an innovation just say, no, no, this is the one time it won't fall that way. It's like, no, it always falls that way. So I, I, making sure that we're ready for that is, is another way of putting it, yeah. Yeah, that's very well said. But you know what? Uh, with regards to your guilt, uh, I interviewed Ada, Ada Palmer um, on my podcast twice. And besides being a phenomenal science fiction author, she's a phenomenal historian. Uh, from the University of Chicago. And uh, one of the main lessons I learned from her, uh, especially since her expertise is kind of like this very turbulent period of sort of the Renaissance slash the Enlightenment, um, is that progress is made of small, imperfect victories. Yes. So the people who won the victory are often disappointed or guilty that it wasn't the perfect victory, that it wasn't the bigger victory that it wasn't a sort of like solve it for once and for all time kind of victory, but it was like much smaller victory than they were going for and that they were hoping for. And yet, if you look back from a historical perspective, we should be happy and satisfied according to her because the progress, historically speaking, in the long run is made of small, imperfect victories. So we should give credit to ourselves and celebrate those. Yeah, I, I, I love that. Um, yeah, two things come to mind as you were saying that. It's like, um, first is, the ex- while there's guilt, there's also this extraordinary uh, 
sense of blessing. Like I, for a living, I get to get involved in fights that help determine what the future looks like for a living. I get paid to do this. Like I, I just, it blows my mind every time we hire a new member of staff where we can talk about the fact that there's, there's a pension program to go to work, to work on these extraordinary things that it's, 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 it's a blessing. It's a privilege. And, and all of that. Um, and then the completely other side of what I was thinking when you were speaking is that um, the little victories, I don't think we even know what victories really are. I think we know what victories are based on uh, what movies have or, and, you know, it's always at the end of a movie when the screen goes black and there's a, the text on the screen about what happened to these people afterwards. Uh, so-and-so went to jail. And so, yeah, that's a victory or something like that. But um, if we're in the battle for the future, we're also in the battle for uh, what people think and what people remember hearing that motivates what they think and believe. And if you just look back at your own life and you you think of all the things you remember that you heard on the radio or you read in the paper or you read in a book or you saw in a movie that shape the, the, the lens that you use to look at the world. Um, and I'm finding myself as I get older, hoping more for victories of that sense because I know what the big victories look like, and 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 we've had a couple. And I also, when you when we have them, I know that they're not really um, going to last long. Um, it's, uh, it's what's like, the biggest uh, one you can think of? Oh gosh, well, there's um, you know we win in courts often. Like just last Friday, we had a big uh, court case in the UK where um, we managed to get 250 years of jurisprudence on search warrants updated for the modern era um and everybody's congratulating us uh and it's lovely like uh edward snowden retweeted it and got a huge amount of love from across the world um me i first of all for me the struggle wasn't about winning the case my the struggle was if we had lost the case we would have owed the government a fuckload of money because of the way that the court system now work in this country you have to pay if you lose so for me and the organization I'm legally responsible for, it was a financial nightmare. Um, yeah. And it was also because it's a five year long case where we lost an, at a number of the stages. It was it was like going to Vegas, um, which is like, OK, we've lost. Maybe I should I should put Call more into the Yeah. Yeah. Before um, you're too deep. Exactly. Or just keep on going. And we kept on going and it just Double got scarier and scarier. Yeah, double or nothing. Exactly. We even had to go to the Supreme Court uh, to fight for our right to take the case. Uh, and so to ultimately win, for me, it's like, yeah, okay, yeah, fine. 250 years of jurisprudence. Yes, that's all fine but and what good. What does that but mean? Sorry, sorry, forgive my ignorance. Can you like unpack that? What does that mean for the average person? How do they know that this is a big deal? Because 250 years of jurisprudence like the first part means a lot, 250 years. You're like, wow, but then what does that second part mean? At least me. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yes. And I'm not a lawyer. Uh, everything I know about law I've learned from my colleagues or seen on TV. So um, uh, lawyers listening might uh, be banging their head against the wall. But um, about 250 years ago, the, the British legal system, the common law, was trying to understand 
the concept of putting constraints on power. And um, one of the powers that the king had at the time was to issue warrants to search people's homes. And uh, the king had become fond or had long been fond of using a general warrant. That is, um, the warrants we have today have a name of an individual, their address, what is to be searched, what are we searching for, and how long the warrant lasts for. But a general warrant is essentially a blank warrant. It says, we know what we're looking for when we find it based on whoever it is that we want to search. And so um, what uh, we were arguing in this court was that the government has essentially allowed itself to create a warrant that says they can search every mobile phone in a whole city. And we said, that's not right. And the government said, well, hold on. Parliament just passed this law and said, it's okay. We said, well, this goes contrary to the laws that like the courts have been developing since 250 years ago, which was linked to the whole American revolution. Part of the revolution, the reason there's a Fourth Amendment in the U.S. Constitution, the Bill of Rights, is in reaction to this general warrant regime. And that's why when the judge, uh, when the, the decision came down last Friday, the judge in this case had to articulate that the, the, the resistance against general warrants is a foundation of British common law. And the fact that it took our case for that to be said and to become part of the fabric of modern law, because nothing had been done on this for 250 years, means that essentially the government was hoping we'd all forget that long tradition of trying to establish constraints on power and just allow for parliament to grant them more power. And the courts said, no, 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 we're going to revert back to these foundational principles of British law. Uh, which is common law, which is also the law that uh, exists in most uh, former British colonies. So the impact of this will hopefully be felt for quite a while. But the call out of victory, I know being up close to the case, it's a victory for financial reasons, as I already said. But for when it comes to the substance of the case, I know that this only means that we have to go back to court again. This only means that we have to fight this, not just in the UK, but in every country where uh, clever politicians think they can get away with this kind of thing. Um, and uh, this is uh, this is just the beginning of the fight. And so never do we get this sense of like, OK, done. There's going to be the black credits on the screen. Minister went to jail. No, it doesn't work that way. It's never that clear cut for us. So, Gus. Perhaps now is the time, since you mentioned that kind of financial burden that the organization is bearing first to run those uh, lawsuits, but secondly, if it were to lose, uh, now is the time perhaps, and that's always a very important question to, to share with us, where is the funding coming for your organization from? Because that, that says a lot, I think. And you already mentioned you have 26 full-time employees, is that correct? Yeah, so um, PI is a registered charity in the UK, which uh, under under law means that we have to serve a public interest. Um, we don't make a profit, and all those other things. But um, as a result, we 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 don't do consultancies. We don't sell anything. We have to receive donations um, from the public and from other institutions. And it just so happens PI structure in a way that because we do international work we get funding from large foundations. So that can vary from um, the traditional 
large foundations like the Ford Foundation in the U.S., the Open Society Foundations in the U.S., which is George Soros's foundation. Um, the uh, one of our largest funders is Luminate which is a foundation that was set up by Pierre Amidiar, who was the co-founder of eBay. And uh, one of our largest um, funders is also the Swedish taxpayer, the Swedish Development Agency funds us because um, the bulk of our work being an international organization is that we work globally. Working globally and doing so in a genuine way that doesn't just involve uh, tweeting comments about what's going on around the world it um is hard and so we work very closely with ngos or non-governmental organizations like us in other countries around the world particularly in the global south so we run a network of small organizations small to medium-sized organizations uh, across latin america east Af- eastern africa um, south asia and southeast asia where we are able to, with the money that we receive, we further it on, we re-grant to them so that they can have operational budgets, so they can run campaigns of their own, so they can do research. And that's, while it's some of the most rewarding work we do, it's also some of the most challenging work we do. And, and, and so when you are asking about what is a victory, for me, that's one of those extraordinary fortunate victories we, we, we had, which was um, in 2008, right after we'd run a campaign against Google, sorry, 2007, a, uh, a Canadian funder came to us and it's the um, International Development Research Can- uh, Center in Canada, IDRC, which is akin to the Swedish Development Agency. And um, they, uh, when, we, when I'm using the word development, I mean, um, it's the old school term for funding development and humanitarian aid in countries um, that have lower incomes. And IDRC came to us and said, have you ever thought of doing similar work in, in Southeast Asia and South Asia? And it had been an, an aspiration of PI since its founding back in the early 1990s. And Apparently, before my time, we had done work in the Philippines and in Thailand and in um, in one other country who's uh, that I that I can't recall at the moment. And but because there was no money for PI, and because the rise of the internet ga- gave rise to such a Western-focused discourse around internet policy for the next ten years, and then nine eleven, of course, uh, we didn't work so much across the world. But then IDRC gave us this opportunity. And but when they asked us, do you do any work in, in South Asia and Southeast Asia? We said, no, we don't even know people. We'd lost contact with that part of the world. So um, IDRC funded us to basically go out in the world and find people. And a lot of the early conversations we had with people who they might have been working on Internet policy, but were focusing, say, on what was considered the larger issue at the time, which was intellectual property and, and copyright or free expression, or it could be a consumer protection organization more worried about protecting people in non-digital ways. So when we're speaking to these actors across the world, a lot of them were just saying, we're not interested. We're not interested at all. And there was one moment when we're in India where uh, people were just saying to us, and one organization in particular laughed at us when we asked them if they would work on privacy issues, because they said, 
Indian people don't care about privacy. This is never <laughs> going to take off. Um, and it was frustrating and demoralizing because that was at a time where, particularly after 9-11, when, when undemocratic regimes around the world were adopting new versions of terrorism laws and trying to dismiss any concerns we were raising as saying, oh, you're just imperialists telling us what to do. Uh, privacy and human rights are Western concepts that don't matter anymore. It was demoralizing to see that civil society often felt the same way, that NGOs and experts felt the same way. But we found some partners eventually. And even that one NGO, um, that one organization in India that laughed at us and said they would never work on these issues. The, the victory is that within two years, they were working with us. And within six years, they were like the largest voice in India on these issues. And India had uh, a Supreme Court case eight years later, and now there's a constitutional right to privacy in India. And there's a constant debate and discourse around uh, privacy and surveillance in India. And this organization, which is the Center for Inter Internet and Society, is probably one of the best voices across the world on these issues. That's a victory. That's a victory turning a turning where the, a part of the world where there was no resistance, and in fact there were actors who weren't interested in resistance to make to, to them now being some of the best resistors out there. So what changed their mind? I think it took a while for for experts and advocates to understand why these things were happening, like that, that these things were truly happening and why they matter. Yeah, to and that's it, why I'm asking you, because it seems to me that you would have gotten that kind of resistance, not only in India, but uh, in China, in Africa, in Congo, in Somalia, in Ethiopia, in Kenya, you know, millennials don't care about privacy. Uh, refugees don't care about privacy. Migrants don't care about privacy. Uh, you name it, uh, the savages don't care about privacy, uh, right? So so that's kind of, a, and of course, privacy is a Western concept. Human rights are a Western concept. It's a new colonialism to impose these on them, on us. Forget it. So so how do you change that? And, and, and why is it not new colonialism? Why is it not Western imposition? Walk us through how, how it worked in India, and hopefully we'll get the lesson about the rest of the world. There are many levels to that. And at the human level, the most base level, because I've, I've worked in a lot of those environments you, you, you talk about, and uh, back in that exact same time, we were working with the UN Refugee Agency, looking at the deployment of biometrics in refugee camps in Eastern Africa and in uh, Southeast Asia. And whenever, whenever those with power speak on behalf of those without, that's when you hear the articulation, oh, people don't care. As you say, millennials don't care or refugees don't care. That's exactly what the authorities were saying. And when you get the opportunity to speak to people at a human level, it's not that all of a sudden they say, they take off their shackles and say, I do care about these issues. What's important is that they, when, when they speak and you listen, you hear how privacy and rights, and because below the rights and the privacy and all those 
highfalutin terms, there's actually dignity and autonomy. And you hear in people's speech constantly how they struggle and how they decide and how they act using dignity and autonomy. How they might not use the words free expression. They may not use the term privacy, but they when when they when you, when they speak of what they are worried about when they speak about what they aspire for then you realize that it's part of the human condition it's not uh and the fact that it's become a right the fact that it's become these noble concepts that's that's because the intellectuals and the lawyers entered the fray but fundamentally the human requires autonomy and then to be treated with dignity and a core component of that amidst the rights framework is privacy. And so that's when you, and then to bring the next layer in the argument, while you could say that country X hadn't had a rich tradition around uh, the rights when it came to say free expression or privacy or other such rights, it's certainly true, particularly considering the political histories, considering so many of these countries had British freaking law uh, from the 1800s that banned X, Y, and Z, basically to stop insurrection. Um, so that's why people didn't have dignity, and that's why they didn't have autonomy. They essentially had internal security acts. And there, there are laws called internal security acts all across that part of the world because they are British law uh, imposed upon these people. And so it's no surprise that their institutions don't respect them. It's no uh, surprise that their their political discourse doesn't talk about rights and such things. And it's, and when they are spoken for, they're spoken for um, as though it's uh, with derision that people don't care about these things. Otherwise, they'd be clamoring for it. But I then, imagine India would have been a perfect case of that. But then, how do you go? How do you change then, it? And how do you end up with a privacy law and protection and the complete hundred and eighty degree change there? But then, what changes? is uh, that's when you can rely on the external forces that come into play. And one of those external forces is the, is the transfer of dumb ideas uh, across the world. And those dumb ideas tend to avoid, uh, involve toys and tend to involve corporate interests. And that is the spread of, uh, in India's case, it was the idea of deploying an ID system across the entire country. Um, and that's the Adhar system that gave rise to a constant discussion around what is what other protections when we're developing a new system that reestablishes the relationship between the individual and the state and the states, because India is a very complex place when it comes to government and governmental power and access to government services. And so that when 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 technology and systems started to be being deployed everywhere in India, all of a sudden the debate naturally arises because it's not alien to people because it's part of the human condition to ask, how am I going to be advantaged or disadvantaged by inclusion or exclusion from this system? And so when you can remove privacy, and I think this was probably the fault of us all up until that era, we, we took a very Fourth Amendment approach to privacy um, saying it's the right to be let alone and all this other kind of stuff that was very uh, 1900s uh, thinking around privacy rather than returning to this idea that it's fundamentally about autonomy and dignity. 
And it's fundamentally about understanding how when change occurs, how is your autonomy and dignity being affected? And that change came in the form often of technology and innovators and policymakers with ambitions, which has always been the case. Uh, but well, I think from India and everywhere across the world was they were seeing the 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 infusion of all these technologies and all these ideas, whether it's in the form of Google coming into a country or, or Facebook's free basics um, coming into a country to provide internet to, to everyone or the rise of ID systems or mobile phone systems um, where you had to start registering your identity or you'd lose your, your connection, which was essentially your livelihood. Um, and then not long after that, you had the Arab Spring. And that's when everything just all started to gel in people's minds, where you had this whole idea that the revolution could take place in the protection of liberty or the enhancement of liberty using the Internet, which we now know is a bit of a myth. But nonetheless, we also saw the dark side of that, where telephone operators were being used by the established authorities to undermine these revolutions. And well, these ultimately failed revolutions in most cases. And so a, a new understanding of the role of technology ironically came out of the, the techno-utopianism that re-emerged in the 2010s, early 2010s. Well, and perhaps, unfortunately involved uh, hope around Facebook. Yeah, speaking of that, perhaps now is the time for us to, to talk about how and why India turned down Facebook. Because that's a very kind of, unique case you know many other countries like for example the philippines decided to make the exactly opposite choice uh so so how is it that that at least the second most populous nation uh, a nation that supposedly if you listen to mark zuckerberg would have benefited tremendously uh actually decided to go against sort of the the intuitive obvious perhaps and turn down Facebook. Yeah, it, it's quite extraordinary. And I think that is one of those rare cases of a victory arising from a campaign by a small group of determined people. I, I, I wasn't anywhere near that campaign, although I watched from afar with, with amazement. Because um, even just this week, we were having a chat in the, the online office at PI about who still uses Facebook. And I'd made a, a a derisive note about oh nobody uses Facebook anymore. Um, <laughs> only my mom's on Facebook in my family, and that's actually true. Um, but uh, our our colleagues who are from across the world are saying you can't laugh Facebook off like because of free basics or its equivalent in in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. That's what people consider the internet and. Uh, and that's and people, my colleagues from Latin America, were saying the exact same thing. It's like, yeah, it's, it's, and Facebook's paying for it. And and in light of the uh, the current revulsion against the the far right using uh, uh, Facebook and Twitter in the U.S., um, Facebook's now paying for essentially becoming the internet. And. Uh, so, uh, so why did their India turn them down and how and why was that a victory, you're saying? Because people would say that's a loss. Look, those are the people they wouldn't have had in the Philippines, in South America, in Southern Africa. People wouldn't have had the internet. 
Facebook came, gave them the internet. Now you can call it Facebook basics, it doesn't matter. What matters is they didn't have access before, now they do. What's the problem? Well, I think, uh, I think the reality is that people in India do have access to the internet. They just don't have access to the internet that Facebook wanted to provide them. Again, this wasn't a, a campaign I was, I was near, um, but it was really interesting to see how they did turn their back on a giant providing something essentially for free. And it's interesting now, all these years later, Facebook's still trying to get into India. Um, the the large uh, Silicon Valley companies are vying for access to the Indian market by trying to buy into the telecommunications sector. Um, and uh, so they're all vying around one of the companies called Reliance, if I recall correctly. And they're finding that it's not easy to penetrate India. And I think the Chinese have learned that recently with the wars in India around, well, there's potentially a physical war about to occur and it's occurring in skirmishes already, but around um, the removal of Chinese apps from, um, from smartphones in India and from um, app stores. So I, I think what's interesting about India, and again, I, I only see it from afar and working with our colleagues, is that they have a long tradition of trying to set their own standards when it comes to the conduct of commerce. And that's why you all of a, all of a sudden have Apple building an iPhone factory in India for Indian consumption. It's also, as you say, the second largest country on the planet. So it's a huge potential market. So um, they get to play that, but also, uh, I India's forget if by 2030 or by 2050, they'll be bigger than China, actually, because they're growing faster, right? They are growing faster. India is a confusing place. It is. <laughs> it's like the, the being a, uh, like working in India now is really, really hard. The, the current government is highly problematic. They're willing to prosecute. They're willing to put pressure. If I recall correctly, Amnesty International essentially had to shut down their work in India or severely curtail their work in India. I remember a story about how um, a uh, member of staff, at, at, uh, I think it was Greenpeace in India, was flying to the UK to give evidence at the House of Commons. And as the plane was about to uh, leave the airport, the police boarded the plane and took her off the plane to, to bar her from traveling to, to the UK to give evidence. This is, yeah, India is not a good place to be trying to raise issues uh, without uh, raising the ire of government. Same as China. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. It's just one would hope better for a democracy. Yeah, well, we have Modi and uh, Trump and Bolsonaro and uh, Duerte and all the people even in Europe, uh, you know, from Hungary to Poland, etc., etc. So it's a kind of a redundant, not unique situation. You have that situation all over the place. Uh, but perhaps now is the time to just turn back a little bit and zoom out and, and just ask you, can you tell us the story of how, why, where, and when perhaps you started caring about privacy uh, personally, and then maybe take that from your personal to sort of the collective level and, and see if you can convince us as per why we should care also about privacy? 
so it's it's that human instinct that I keep coming back to. I could put it down to, you know, having read 1984 or seen whatever movie where the baddies uh, owned the goodies by having complete power over them. Um, or you can just say it's it's universal based on that time where your parent uh, entered your room when you didn't want them to or went through your bag when you didn't want them to and that sense of uh, injustice that arises in the heart or for me it's it's often in the throat but um, the the key moment for me was actually and uh, it was at university when a friend of mine had uh, was approached and told that somebody had taken a uh, a video of her in a highly compromising situation and had made copies of the video and had, had circulated it. And uh, she was, of course, devastated. And uh, she, well, together, we went to the authorities and said to the police, you know, what can be done about this? And the response from the police, like the, the police were, very very kind and they were very very supportive but they said there was nothing they could do and was that in waterloo in canada or yeah it was i don't want to go into too much detail sure sure no i'm just trying to and, figure out the, a little bit more yeah, of the context. it was in canada i was at waterloo and uh and it's just as you go through that process over a period of time the the sense of injustice and that, that feeling in the throat <laughs> that like it's like something's so frustratingly wrong you get that lump of like it's, just, it's injustice that you can't do anything about that sense of powerlessness and this was this was the era of vhs and so we know this type of uh, of abuse takes place on a minute by minute basis across the world today and and this revenge porn concept has has reached unbelievable levels and again that's and so i'm not the victim here so I'm, i, I want to be very cautious about owning this story too much but for me that was a formative moment and was to, and so it wasn't the government interfering it wasn't some company interfering and it wasn't just that somebody had done this it was more the sense of loss of control over again your dignity and the fact that's something that I still can't reconcile and I can do nothing about based on the, the job I do today is the joy that others took in the consumption of, of content that reduced the dignity of somebody without their knowledge. What about those people who would say, well, Gus, whoever that was should have known better they would say, I personally have nothing to hide. I personally don't see why I should care about this since I'm just not that kind of person. I don't have dead skeletons in my closet. I don't have any compromising tapes of me. I don't have anything to hide. Why should so I she, care? She didn't think she had any compromising tapes. This was a secret tape. This was a tape that was taken without her knowledge. Um, and that's... That's why that story hits me so hard. But yeah, it's it's 
it is, although de- decreasingly so, um, it is it is common to hear the nothing to hide, nothing to fear. And it's actually, it, it is the most hated, it's the most feared question a privacy advocate could ever hear. Uh, if you're about to do media, if you're doing media and all of a sudden you get that question, it is the hardest thing to respond to. Which because, is why I'm asking it. <laughs> yeah, I know. And and as a respondent, you have to ask yourself, if you're, if I, am I responding to you or am I responding to the people who are listening? To the people and, who are listening, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and the people who are listening, do they necessarily feel that way? Do they always feel that at no point in their lives do they feel compromised? At no point in their lives do they feel that with or without malintent, their information about them can be used and lost by others? Do they do these do people feel like they have control over how large institutions, whether they be banks or whether they be governmental or whether they be I don't know, insurance companies, how they determine what what they are worth, what is their value, what is their risk. I think all around us, we're recognizing that we are not in control. And there are others who are in control, and they are using our data. And so by us being able to put boundaries and, and build up walls and to, to be back in control of well, the way I, I see it increasing is like limiting our attack surface, saying that there's a limit to what governments can do, there's a limit to what companies can do, there's limits to what my neighbors can do, there's a limit to what my my family can do to me. That is core to the protection of myself and myself today and myself tomorrow. And so even if you have nothing to nothing to hide and you want to share, that's also part of the human condition. That's also very, very human to want to communicate and share and put yourself out there. And that's why that that whole like, oh, millennials don't care. That that whole thing arose because millennials were the first generation from 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 youth to have social media. And so there's this myth that emerged that because they are part of the social media generation, that they put everything out there and they just don't care. Um, and the reality is, first, they they do care a lot about what they're putting out there. That's their identity that the, that's being asserted when they when they communicate. And sometimes one has to wonder how much of it is their right their projection of their identity versus their actually true identity. Um, but also, study after study shows that it's the people who disparage the millennials. They're the ones who are doing a worse job of this whole social media and sharing of data and making themselves vulnerable to attack and to compromise by powerful authorities out there. So, uh, yeah, it's basically people in their 40s and 50s who think they're in control who really aren't versus younger people who have grown up with technology and with this idea of managing their self digitally. They're the ones who know better how to do these things. But for me, being able to see behind the curtain as to what really goes on in the world, um, there's this absolute illusion that the individual can play any role in determining the, the, the degree to which they are exposed. Yeah, you know, 
I grew up, uh, so you're asking, you don't, you're saying you don't know how old I am. I'm 44 years old. I was born in 1976 in Bulgaria. So I actually grew up behind the Iron Curtain in a context of the Cold War. And so to me, uh, it's very apparent that privacy protects the individuals, the small people, the citizens, and that the removal of privacy always serves the government or the big powers that may be, be it corporate or, you know, political, like the Communist Party or the state, etc., etc. So to me, having that background context, you know, of, of, of not really having privacy always reminds me the importance of privacy and how actually privacy protects you from the powers that may be, as I said, again, whether the the, the Communist Party or the state or a corporation or what have you, or the religious authority, for example. Uh, I, I, I know that for a fact from my own personal experience, but, but I have to ask that question because many people don't share that experience. Of course. Um, and of course, if you listen to people, they would have said back in the day, oh, the Eastern Europeans, they don't care about privacy. Uh, they care about freedom. Uh, you know, they care about, uh, I don't know, the free market. They care about food in their, uh, in, on the shelves of their stores, which were empty. Uh, they care about not having hyperinflation, which is what happened after the collapse of communism and all those things. But actually, we also did and do very much care about our privacy. Uh, and speaking of attack surface, uh, that's the title, of course, as you know, of Cory Doctorow's most recent book, which is uh, dead on this oh, topic. Yeah. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, I, I highly recommend that people check it out because it's, it's, uh, it's very useful uh, to eliminate uh, many of the issues uh, on this topic. But let me ask you the second most hated question that you have to get today, which is to define privacy for us. <laughs> it is extraordinarily hard to do that and I, i've alluded to it so far in the, in the many ways that it's been done like american scholarship refers to it as the right to be let alone um which ironically gets confused today as being the right to be left alone, which is a very different concept. The right to be let alone is to to, to not be encumbered, to not be interfered with, uh, to, be, to, to be free without any outside interference versus the right to be left alone, which is to say, we know interference can, can arise, but we'll let you be. Um, but as I said, that, was a ne that wasn't particularly helpful or convincing as we were expanding our work beyond the idea of privacy in the face of the totalitarian state and when we're trying to see privacy in everybody's lived experience and that's when we fall back to the base human experience and the human condition which is dignity and autonomy and the ability for the human to establish the conditions by which they are seen, perceived, understood, and how they project themselves. So within that definition of privacy, that I essentially just made up those words, um, you can see how expression and self-expression is a component of privacy. 
That is what I choose to share outbound. Some people call speech, but for me, it's me choosing to disclose. That choice and the articulation is me building that wall and building the windows to say, you can peer in and see this, but not everything else. And so I, I don't associate with the legalistic, the, the, the constitutionalist, the, the rights-based or the power-based explanations uh, of, of rights. They're, they're all nice and they, they sound very convincing in courts or they sound convincing in, in diatribes and movies or soliloquies in movies. But really for me, it, it's just, it's that personhood concept. It is me as a human every single second of my day in this very conversation, in the way I comport myself, in the way I dress myself, in the way I let you see, well, my wife's books in the background. Everything is about how I choose to be seen and not seen, how I choose to be heard and not heard, how I choose to be and not be. Let that me suggest me a, 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 a little uh, angle here perhaps that might help us or might not help us that came to me actually in the previous point that, that I wanted to make and I forgot it. And when you started giving it this kind of a shape that you are right now, it kind of immediately reminded me and that connects back to the millennials and to social media, which people give as an example that millennials don't care about privacy. I would say Based on what you just said, in my own experience, actually, social media is the exact opposite proof that millennials do care about privacy because social media provides them the framework within which they get in charge of telling their own story the way they want to tell it by highlighting what is important and what matters for them and skipping over and not highlighting the things that they don't care about or the things that they want to keep private. And so now many people, observers, especially of the older generation, would say, well, look at the stuff they're sharing. This is all private stuff. Therefore, they don't care about privacy. But no, actually, you're giving us the, the focus here that what matters is who is in charge. That's where privacy comes, comes uh, to play who has control of the over their dignity and who has the power to highlight different elements of their story right so the older people the older generation will say they share two private things so they don't care but the younger people would say no i am in charge what parts are private for me and which ones are not i have the power to highlight or to delete i care in that sense you know, this is where my dignity comes from, from telling my story the way I want to tell it and being in charge of it. Now, you may not like that story, but I tell it it's my story, right? And the divergence of perception comes from the fact that some would say, I don't like your story, therefore you don't care about privacy. But the key point here is, again, who controls the telling of that story? And we have many examples. So, for example, there was this case of a millennial... Uh, a homosexual teen in New York that killed themselves after uh, another person sort of leaked in a video of them online. That was the university roommate. Yes, I remember e that. Exactly, right. So this is a perfect example of where 
you know, the, the person who committed suicide committed the suicide because they felt that they lost control over the story that's informing or representing them in the world as who they are, where they're coming from, when they're going, and what they're all about. In a way, that other person, their roommate, took away the power from them. And the suicide showed the fact that in contrast to the common belief where people believe that actually millennials don't care about privacy, in fact, they care so much that they're willing to die for it. Because once they, it's lost, it's, it's like a loss of existential modus operandi. It's like they're losing their why for living. They, they've lost everything for them. That's how actually fundamentally important it is to them. And so, and that's why uh, we have to also, of course, be cognizant of the fact that social media is not reality. It's not the true story. It's the story that that person tries to tell the world, which is very subjective, highly skewed and highly personalized. Uh, but that's that's where their shape, form, and representation of privacy, autonomy, and dignity is kind of embodied. Yeah, yeah. And then when you raise the structural aspects of things in the story, you just said there's the structural, which is how the society around that individual and how that individual individual felt about the society around them felt judged and irreparably judged. And so therefore may, that might've been the, the, the reason he committed suicide. And so you, you, you want privacy to protect people from that structural challenge of the, the peering eye of our peers and our, our, the society around us Those are the social forces, but there's also the, um, the structural power of the, the companies themselves who, who, at least in the early days, although we're seeing every day still, when they decide the degree to which we have control over what goes out and what doesn't go out, the early days of social media were incredibly stupid. They were just like huge broadcast mechanisms that just create so much noise that it always had to be become more human or more mimicking of human, uh, the, the conduct of human affairs. And so we they're getting closer and closer. This naive belief that utopianly things will just work for the best. Just let exactly. it be there and it's all going to be perfect. Yeah, absolutely. And so the companies have had to learn. We've had to learn. We've all had to watch as they change the settings of what the settings mean. And this was most recently seen with the WhatsApp policy change and and how that gave rise to significant concern and people moving from WhatsApp to other messaging platforms. But leaving that aside for a second, that's not even the real fight because it's almost like these companies get to choose the windows that we build. But they, and so they, they get to choose how we think we are maintaining control. But what's more worrying, and we, we found this in a study that we did in 2018 was Facebook, Facebook's knowledge of you, for instance, isn't limited to what you upload to Facebook and isn't, isn't up, uh, it, is, it isn't limited to what you put in a status update or what others put in a status update about you. What Facebook knows about you based on a study we did in 2018, we analyzed apps, the, the most popular apps in the Android uh, store 
in the Play Store. So these are non-Facebook apps. These are apps that you use for uh, prayers. These are apps that you use for booking travel. What we found is that by default, these apps were leaking all of the data of like, I want to travel to Scotland this weekend. That was going to Facebook. Because of Facebook's API, the, the fact that apps in, in, include Facebook code in their apps practically universally, this code was leaking all this data to Facebook. And so even if you didn't have a Facebook account, if you use this app, Facebook was getting access to the fact that you wanted to book travel to Scotland. And so that's how these giants, and I'm picking on Facebook, but this applies to all of the giants and the giants you don't even know about, like the data broker industry. And what we were finding out in the last few weeks because of uh, some journalists in the US, this prayer app was leaking data and the US government bought that data and it happened to be a Muslim prayer app. And so the US government was buying this data to find out the location data of people using this app. And so there, while there's all these battles about is company X allowing me to do what I want to do, the reality is above and below you, they're just sucking data out without you having any knowledge of. And so Privacy International wants you to feel good and in control of the data you're knowingly engaging with. But we need to fight the war over the far larger amount of data that's coming out that you have no knowledge of and you have no control over. And it isn't about whether you buy an Apple device or you buy a Motorola device. It isn't whether you use Facebook or you use Twitter. These choices that you think you're given or these rights that you think you're given based on where you live or what passports you carry, those are immaterial to what the true evil geniuses on this planet are doing when it comes to your data. And so when I describe PI as going after or being the response to those powerful forces, I'm not talking about Facebook and its privacy policy or its settings or people's attitudes. I'm talking about there being vast accumulation of power as a result of intelligence on people without people having any knowledge and people all over the world all of a sudden having their data in places that they've never even had to imagine are part of their daily lives. And then those institutions using that power to their own benefit. That's the battle we're fighting. Yeah, and so let's let's talk about the big battle then. Let's talk about the sort of the battlefield, the stakes, uh, the sort of the weapons, the the sort of the the victories the losses the the chronology of that war if you if you will walk us through that uh, because I know part of that battle is also the fact that Facebook is one of the biggest commercial purchaser of user data that comes from let's say credit rating agency banks uh, surveillance cameras uh, you name it so they they're not only creator of of that data but they actually buy it. So they're not only selling access to us, but they're buying access to us. So they're putting it all together, not only from their own sources, but from other sources. But but you just mentioned the even bigger issue about the, the general war. So so talk to us about the shape of the war, the battlefield, the tools, the, the stakes, the chronology. So fundamentally, this is a war about intelligence. And I, I, and I won't I won't speak too much on the artificial aspect of that, but I, I speak about intelligence in the um, in the old school way uh, 
of saying, is it possible to understand what's going on at any moment in time without your adversary knowing? And that adversary is often us. And uh, the people who are doing this is often governments. Traditionally, it has been governments. Governments are the only ones who had the capability. And up until 20 years ago, the capability of a government to understand what's going on elsewhere in the world was extraordinarily limited. And for the capability of a government knowing what's going on in their own country was predominantly limited to what the individual was required to do, to register for an ID, to answer a census, to pay their taxes, to report on their income, and of course, health. Then in the last 20 years, arguably the the, the history of data brokers is longer, but in the last 20 years, data brokers who are just these companies, and the vast majority of them people have never even heard of, who all they do, and the only reason they exist is to accumulate data. And often they care very little about the validity of, validity of that data, the accuracy of that data, but it's just data they can put into a resource and then sell access to that resource. And so I remember in the early 2000s, one of the more interesting stories was how a company called ChoicePoint it's an American company, or it was an American company. They had managed to get access essentially to the census of a Latin American country. And they then sold access to that data to the US government. Now, if the US intelligence agency wanted to have access to all that data, they would have to compromise a few systems. Like this is about 20 years ago before everything was vastly uh, digitalized the way it is now. They would have had to put in a few secret agents and all that. But now, then they just had to buy it. And that's all they have to do now. They just have to buy it. So it's just this nexus of industry and government just collecting information, not with a clear purpose, but just thinking it could be used to generate intelligence and it could be useful at some moment in time. And so whether it is the prayer app that you're using, thinking, oh, uh, maybe Facebook gets a little bit of this data, you're not thinking that the US government's going to buy that data. And similarly, um, we're seeing the use of this type of data when it comes to COVID tracking. And we're gonna see the use of this data in war. There was always that, that, there was that fascinating example of um, that running app, um, starts with an S. Strava. His name I can't, yeah, the Strava. How uh, it was, the, the, the company was able, was gathering the, the location data of usage and it just so happened that the location data of some of its users or a large number of its users were around u.s air force bases uh, and military bases around the world because you know people in the military like using this app this is who would have thought that a company that 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 is in the business of running could have the layouts of top secret air force bases around the world but this is the nature of how it's done now. And so companies like Facebook play a different role to companies like data brokers, where data brokers will accumulate the information and hope to sell, uh, sell access to the information. Facebook accumulates this information and they would be insane to sell it. What they do instead is they sell access to you. And Facebook can sell in, in its current form, it takes its advertising. As we saw during elections, it's political advertising. And 
that's almost in its most innocuous form. Going forward, what is it going to be used for? And that's when we saw the example of Google back in, I think it was November last year with their project Nightingale, where it was a secret project where Google was creating agreements with hospitals to get access to hospital data. And nobody was being told. And even if you were being told, say you get an emergency and the ambulance is saying, okay, we're going to take you to this hospital. You don't check the freaking privacy policy of a hospital before you go to it. That's the last thing you probably think of when you're like in the ambulance. (laughs) Exactly. And I think more, more people know of the Hippocratic Oath than they know about a privacy policy. And so they would presume that if they're being cared for, their data shall not be going elsewhere. But instead, there's just this, this, this black market. At any moment in time, you can't tell if it's governments or companies who are the worst actors in fomenting this black market so that they can get access to this data and sell these ideas of intelligence. So what are the, the sort of the scariest tools that be it governments, be it uh, corporations, be it data brokers, use that we should know about and be concerned about the most? Give me like the top two or three or something. So the the level of analysis is that, well, okay, a government could, with ease, without anybody's knowledge, compromise the the systems and the devices used by an opposition political party in any part of the world at any moment in time. There's right nothing... now it's happening in Uganda as we speak, where exactly. they shut down the internet completely, like, I don't know, a and day And we ago. have worked in Uganda, and we faced uh, the ire of the government when we disclosed the fact that they, had pro- they were trying to procure this exact type of technology to hack mobile phones of uh of politicians but also of a protest movement um that was fighting for uh workers rights so they were they were willing and interested in in essentially using the most powerful surveillance force known at the time just to go after protesters and i I don't mean that to sound rude just to go after protesters but that's governments don't know proportion anymore when they have access to these extraordinary tools and so Going forward, of course, there's the interferences that could occur of, of a nature of um, if you build a smart city, you can disrupt a smart city. You can shut down components of the, uh, the, of the power grid, which we've already seen has taken place um, in a number of cases. Or the internet. Or you can shut down the internet, as we've seen in a number of cases. I think the ones that we don't we haven't quite gotten our heads around yet isn't when data is stolen and isn't when uh intelligence is garnered there's something worse which is when you can interfere with systems without people knowing and change outcomes and of of course the moment i say those words i worry that people are thinking in terms of elections um and i I don't and that's that's certainly something to be concerned about but i think that if we're increasingly using intelligence in order to make decisions decisions of significant nature then what better than to do 
than to undermine the quality of the data upon which intelligence is generated, to make people think they're making conscious, informed decisions when in reality they're making decisions that benefit somebody else. And in a, yeah, whether it is census numbers, whether it is COVID infection rates, whether it is um, uh, polling data that informs how campaigning shall take place, or whether it is health diagnosis data, generally financial data of, of, of a company. Mortgage applications. This is how you, yeah. Insurance This is how rates. you change the world. This is how you change the world. Not by the, the traditional sense of spying, but, by, but be, because we're digitizing everything and because we're using data to make decisions about people and the data about people is now considered to be of higher importance than what people themselves say about themselves. So when you go to the bank to get a mortgage, it doesn't matter what you say to the bank. The bank has all the data that they think is a truer representation of you than you say yourself. It also doesn't matter what that person across from you says too, because exactly. all they're doing is they're just following whatever the computer tells them to do. They're exactly. like totally out of the loop. They have zero power. They put your name, your other data, a response is spit out, there's an interest rate or whatever if you're approved, and that's it. Take it or leave it. Exactly. Oh, and so by the way, if you go to shop around in the next bank for the same thing, you're going to get a hit. So the next quote would be a little higher and a little higher, and every time your credit rating would be a little bit diminished because you can't shop around. Exactly. And so everybody who's ever interacted with a, a, a closed bureaucratic system that could be a governmental bureaucratic system, or it could be a, uh, a a corporate bureaucratic system. And anybody who's ever felt uh, unjustly treated, but also knew that they couldn't do anything about it, and that again, that lump in the throat that comes up, those people don't realize that they're private. They're fighting a privacy war. Going forward, particularly, but that's that's been the case traditionally. They are fighting a privacy war. They're fighting a war for it to be heard the way that they think they deserve to be heard, but instead something's happening to them that they have no control over. I think it's again coming back to that ability to tell your own story in your own words, in your own way, and highlight the things that you think are important and hide the things that you want to keep private. Yes. Everybody gets somewhere through representation and misrepresentation or disclosing or not disclosing, but that is being taken away from you. And that's one thing that's being taken away from you. But second, it's being taken away without, uh, from you without your knowledge. And third, the people who are using the products of that think that they're getting a truer understanding of you than you are, than they would get from you. And fourth, they don't understand that that entire edifice of uh, that entire uh, uh, wave data is could potentially be mud and could be can potentially be compromised and could potentially be rewritten. And so they have this absolute faith. The institutions have absolute faith that they are making the right decisions based on uh, on the right data, and we're building. We're building a very dumb future as a result of that. So let me ask you about two examples, perhaps here, that, that you can 
talk us through about sort of like collective um, monitoring or collecting of that intelligence uh, at the macro and micro or the global and the, the local level. So tell us about sort of the, the existence of the so-called national monitoring centers and the existence of devices such as the NZ catchers. Hmm. Yeah, MZ catchers are oh, MZ um, catchers. You see, yes. Yeah, ignorance comes true. You can't hide it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let me describe what these MZ catchers are. Um, let me step back and talk about you going to a protest. You want to go to a protest. You want to have your voice heard about something that matters to you, and it's a fundamental right. And in the 1950s, in the United States, there was the rise of an organization called the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP. It still exists, still an extraordinary um, organization. And Martin Luther King Jr. was a member of this organization. They ran protests. And the government of Alabama hated Martin Luther King Jr., hated the NAACP. And so they passed a law saying, if you run a non-governmental organization and you have a membership, you must make that membership list available. And essentially, they wanted to make sure that people were afraid to sign up to, to the NAACP because the state of Alabama would have access to this list. And I don't know if you know your history. I'm sure you do. The state of Alabama wasn't exactly a, a kind, friendly place. Uh, particularly towards uh, African-Americans fighting for their rights. So the Supreme Court very famously struck down this law, and th that became one of the foundations of US, uh, the U.S. right to privacy, essentially saying you don't want an antagonistic government being able to have access to this, and it would chill your ability, your, your likeliness to participate in a free and open society and your right to have free expression, free speech. So now governments would also find it bureaucratically challenging to make everybody sign up to something. But when you go to a protest today, what they do instead of asking you to sign up at the, uh, at the gates towards a, uh, a park is they go to telephone companies and ask telephone com mobile phone companies, give us the list of everybody who was in the neighborhood. And the telephone companies in some countries, well, in some countries, the telephone companies are owned by the government. In other countries, the telephone companies have secret um, rooms where telephone company employees can't go, but government employees go every day and get access to this data. But in some countries, telephone companies resist. Or in some countries, the authorities don't want the telephone companies to know that this is actually happening. So what was developed was this technology called an MZ catcher. Every mobile phone device has a unique identifier that's transmitted to the, the mobile phone base station, but to the telephone company for your connection. And so what an MZ catcher does, and it could be no larger than like a, a shoe, depending on how powerful it needs to be. When you turn on the switch, it acts like a mobile phone base station. And so every mobile phone in the area, rather than connecting to the antenna that might be a mile away, 
will instead connect to the nearest antenna that's sending the most powerful signal being this, this box that the police are walking around a protest with. Or it might be in a van that the police are, are, are driving around a neighborhood. And that device is collecting all the unique identifiers of everybody's mobile phone. And then if the government's able to link the identifiers to the individual, they have the participation list of everybody. And we've been pushing back against this power of governments to use this technology for about 15 years now. And it's the fact that this technology exists is, a, is an accident of the fact that mobile tele telecommunications infrastructure is, was designed very badly. It's insecure technology. And so IMSI cachers shouldn't exist, but they, they, they're an accident that they do. And so we ask governments to not use it. We ask companies not to build it and sell it to governments, but companies want to build it and sell it to governments because they want to make money selling this, this type of ware. And where governments have been held to account, particularly in the US, because some of the organizations in the US have taken cases in the courts, um, governments have started to face opposition and have curtailed possibly the use of IMSI catchers but that's still unclear. In the UK, this country is a joke at times when it comes to uh, their, the, the idea that the democratic country operating under the rule of law, that um, the government refuses to admit that they use IMSI catchers. So because they refuse to admit, we can't take action. They can they they neither confirm nor deny that they use this technology. So we can't we've tried to take a case in the courts, and the courts say, well, the government can't say that they actually do use this technology. And we know they do. The government knows that we know they do. But the courts say, well, we can't get any evidence on this, so you can't proceed. And this is a, yet again one of those invisible forms of surveillance that people just don't know about. If the government wanted to get access to a telephone company, there would have to be a law and they'd have to show up with the permission of some independent authority, usually a judge to say, we deserve to have access to all this data. So at least there's a noble regime, a legal regime approved by our parliament. And um, as a result, the government can, uh, can do as it, as it needs to do, but will be held to account. But these types of technologies like IMSI catchers or the ability of government to hack infrastructure directly. So instead of going to a telephone company, they'll just hack into the telephone company which the UK government got caught hacking into a uh, into Belgacom, the, the Belgian mobile phone company, because they wanted access to, um, to devices in Africa. And that's what the intelligence agencies do nowadays. Rather than knock kindly at the door, rather than seek uh, a law in, um, in, in, uh, in a parliament, they'll just act directly, interfere with the infrastructure directly, which is why it's interesting to, to have seen over the last couple of years, this concern around Huawei and 5G, the fact that Huawei builds smart cities should be of equal, if not greater concern than their 5G infrastructure. But it's interesting to see, finally, there's, there's recognition that there might be vulnerabilities built into the very infrastructure that we're building our societies on. Um, my point and the point of anybody with any understanding of security is that every infrastructure has vulnerabilities. Some just invest a lot more time in protecting against those vulnerabilities. 
others, such as intelligence agencies and and nefarious companies, spend a lot of time uh, understanding those vulnerabilities and and uh, exploiting them. And so this is why I think the future is going to be dumb until we do something. The future is going to be dumb because we keep on building all these shiny things, thinking we're building a better world that some politician thinks because they saw some marketing material that this is going to be a better economy that we build on top of all this technological infrastructure without realizing that they're buying terrible technology that is faulty, that is leaky, that is insecure, that can be exploited by those who invest enough energy in doing so. And they will exploit it in ways, whether it's to interfere or whether it's to influence. And that's just a dumb future. Okay, but uh, what about the Huawei examples notwithstanding? What about the idea that if you buy from alternative suppliers, not from Huawei, 5G should be helping us alleviate many, if not all of these problems? In other words, it's a step forward with respect to 4G. So, first of all, I'm not, I never subscribed fully to the school that Huawei was any more of a problem than any other provider when it came, when it comes to whose political interests are embedded within the technology. Second, my understanding of Huawei's 5G tech was that wasn't that it had been necessarily compromised, was that instead it was just a bit shit. It wasn't very good. And that's because 5G itself was, it, it, the standards around it were never incredibly clearly embedded within technology. And the Chinese were the first movers. And that's what gave them the market advantage. And essentially that the, the European companies and the American companies had just relinquished fighting against that first movement. And so if these other companies say the, the Nokia's of the world um, uh, are stepping up into the 5G game, are they going to build it stronger and better? Will it be verifiably so? And whose political interests will be embedded within it? And going back to the security point, no infrastructure ever built is secure enough against a, a concerted attacker. And that concerted attacker, when our entire worlds will be built upon these things, will be very, very powerful as a result of it. Well, one of our listeners here uh, named Terence Reed, who actually resides in China, uh, has sent a question for you right on this topic. And he's asking this, quote, what is Gus's take on quantum encryption? China Telecom launched a quantum encrypted phone service available to users from certain sectors that need, quote, absolute security, such as government, military, and financial institutions. It will eventually expand to civil use in the future. That's at least the idea. What about that? And of course, so, the Chinese seem to be leaders here since they're the first to launch such quantum encrypted device. start the basics encryption of any form is a good thing and uh, the use of strong encryption is a wonderful thing 
And so the more of our transactions that we use, um, that we undertake using strong encryption would be wonderful. Anything that increases the costs of an attacker to compromise a stream of interaction or a, a store of data. Then on top of that, there's what we call end-to-end -end encryption, which is encryption deployed in a way that if kind of like this interaction that we're doing over Zoom, traditional encryption of Zoom would be I connect to Zoom servers encrypted, Zoom decrypts, connects to, uh, you connect to Zoom, but Zoom in the middle can pay attention to everything. But end-to-end -end encryption, which Zoom was forced to deploy, uh, is such that only your device and my device can understand what's going on. Very, unfortunately, very little of the use of encryption in the world as we know it today involves end-to-end -end encryption. We need more of it. And so when WhatsApp adopted end-to-end -end encryption, that was a huge moment that all of a sudden a tool that billions of people use every day to communicate is encrypted in a way that WhatsApp and Facebook can't read the communications. It's huge. That, that was a sea change in the quality of security as we know it. Quantum encryption is like a, a, almost like a different game at the lower level, which is can we encrypt things in a way that somebody on the outside can't listen in? And for what it's worth, we do that relatively well now. But if you are an incredibly resourceful uh, outside body, being essentially the Chinese intelligence, uh, Russian, Israeli, British, and American, maybe the French. Um, we then, have the CSE in Canada too. Yeah, but that's um, CSE. A lot of my uh, former Waterloo compatriots probably uh, work there. Um, they're they're good. Don't get me wrong, but it's just it, they're all part of the Five Eyes, which is a a, a grouping of uh, five countries' intelligence agencies, and they spend a lot of time um, and resources with computers to be able to break encryption of that nature. And quantum encryption, in theory, makes the traditional attempts to break encryption um, well pointless. And there's a theory also that quantum computing will enable, will, will disable the quality of security on common encryption as we know it. So having said all of those things, and again, rem remembering that I say that encryption is incredibly important, compromising the security and privacy of a system is extraordinarily easy because our world is a house built in the house of cards. And so while the, the two devices that the, uh, the, the person asking the question, while two devices might be able to use quantum encryption to make sure that the stream of data going between the two devices is extraordinarily secure, the devices themselves are probably running a, a version of an operating system that hasn't been updated for two years, which means just about anybody with any type of knowledge of security could compromise the devices themselves, turn on the microphones, turn on the keyboard uh, loggers, or just pay attention to all data that's being generated by the machine before it gets encrypted. And that's how intelligence agencies work today. Yes, there are the, the old school uh, ways of going into the cables and hacking the cables and introducing splitters, which is really hard to do. But you know, some governments are still capable of doing it, but most governments the UK just seems to be doing it still. 
Oh yeah, 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 that, and they do it. Uh, they do it on. They, they do it across the world. They do it on the British beaches. They're so obvious about it. it. It's brutal. And we're taking a case to the European Court of Human Rights on the question. Yeah, that that but, kind of just touches before we move on because you're you're like you're going to finish your thought, of course. But that touches on the other point that I was talking about: national monitoring centers. So we don't have to come back to it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and so, the, like that is how. Governments did it in Cold War, and that's how they're they're doing it to some extent now. But hacking and compromising infrastructure uh, through digital means rather than these brutish physical means is uh, and and that those physical means could include like trying to guess a key. No, they're just going to hack the next layer, and that's why things like smart cities or five G or any any type of of infrastructure that's built. Them, even before they're deployed, they are compromised. And so there's a constant war going on in the security world, and it's a good war, and it's a valuable war, where if you create a piece of code, you create an iPhone, or you create a, a 5G um, uh, uh, network conduit point, you're constantly looking at the software and seeking vulnerabilities to try to improve it. Because you know that there's somebody else in the world who's doing the exact same thing, probably for more nefarious purposes. And so you're trying to constantly improve. There's no perfection around this stuff. And so my concern about quantum is that the discourse becomes very quickly about how perfective it is and how uh, the astronomical computing resources that are required in order to compromise the stream. And that's not wrong. It's just, we still don't know how to secure the 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 monitor from uh, uh the, the the chip that sends the signals from your computer to your monitor and that's going to be compromised on that quantum device and so we do such so many of the easy things badly yet we focus on the hard things and invest a lot of resources in those Cory Doctorow's book attack surface uh, attack surface really goes into depth into this uh into into talking about how uh, you know, the governments, uh, uh, you, in, uh, so let me put it the other way, you have to be perfect, whereas they have to find only one mistake of yours to yeah. compromise you once and then forever, pretty much. Exactly. And, and, and so and no one is perfect in the long run. Everyone makes mistake, and you only need to make one mistake. And yeah. especially since if we presume that the quantum encryption is perfect, the house of cards that you're talking about is not so much even the connection between the computer and the monitor, but the human, yeah. the human at the end of the keyboard. Yeah. They can socially engineer us in so many ways. And in one of your speeches, actually, uh, online, you're showing how uh, this this kind of cartoon caricature where uh, someone uh, was trying to, uh, two, let's say, intelligence officers were trying to to gather data from uh, from a specific person, and they and 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 there were two versions of the cartoon. The fir first one was saying, "Oh, this person is using strong encryption. We're fucked." Uh, we have a billion dollar, you know, computer, but this person is using strong in encryption. We're fucked. And the other, the, the following cartoon was saying, take this $5 wrench, hit him on the head, and then we'll break his uh, strong encryption. Yeah. 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 You know, so... That's from, um, that's from XKCD. And I strongly recommend, if you're listening to this and you're interested in hearing about more of those types of things, xkcd.com. 
uh, every day has a new cartoon of that nature. And they, whoever, whoever comes up with that understands tech and understands the house of cards and understands um, that this is the world and these, this is the, 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 the deck that we've been dealt. And they understand that how amusing and scary it is at the same time. And understands that we are the weakest link almost always by definition. So yes, we should improve the tech. Yes, should always use encryption, but we shouldn't forget that we are still the weakest link and they only need to compromise the weakest link to compromise the whole system. <laughs> and then the house of cards would be theirs. Uh, so, and, and again, as Corey says, we only need to make one mistake. So yeah. It, it's and so a, then the question in, re in return to that, that I'm constantly trying to figure out, it's like, if we want to stop these powers from being able to exploit in this way. And if you take off the table, the idea that technology can be perfected, because there's no perfection when it comes to technology, no such thing as a uh, completely secured system. So what do we do? Exactly. I don't want us to not use the tech. Yeah. I want us to throw away tech because I, I'm a, fervent and I love using tech. I love, I'm an early adopter of many things. I want to see more use of, of tech in our lived experiences, whether it's in our cities or um, in, in, in government systems and in, in, in the marketplace. But so do we ban some techniques? Do we say governments can't do X, Y, and Z? And so we do that. PI does that. We say governments shouldn't be able to do X, Y, and Z. But it's impossible to monitor them, especially the intelligence agencies that uh, operate on a different layer, like are a law upon themselves. Like there was one case that we took where we were finally able to show that the government was using a power that um, they didn't have a law for. And that's a huge thing. If you believe in the rule of law, as this country in theory believes, um, that if the government's acting without legal permission, then something's wrong. So what the government did the day before the court was going to rule on this, they went and on a piece of paper wrote down the law and came back and showed it to the court. And the court said, oh, okay, well, now you have written it down, so it's okay. That's the bullshit that occurs at the intelligence layer of, of governments. Now imagine what companies are up to at their intelligence layer, how they're rewriting the rules the entire time. So banning these fuckers from doing what they do is, is merely a step. But what else can we do? We can reduce the attack surface by requiring the technologies are more secure or by requiring that if governments are deploying, say, a smart city infrastructure, they don't do it in stupid ways. If we're deploying infrastructure in hospitals, we make sure there are no secret agreements with Googles of the world. But how do you monitor all these things? And this is where I feel like there's never, there's no end to what it is that we as PI have to do. And if we were 10 times our size, I can't say we'd be 10 times more effective because the, the nature of the problem, particularly the, force, the, 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 the visible, the invisible side of the problem, of the spectrum of the problem um, is so immense. So yeah, I don't what, have a way of ending that. Yeah, so so what does the average person who is listening to this or watching this do? 
Yeah, I know. And and that's probably the third most hated question. <laughs> uh, that's my job. I'm sorry. Yeah, no. And I'm, don't get me wrong. Like, I've been around long enough not to get angry at people who are asking these questions. But in my in the first 10 years of my career, when these questions were asked, um, I'd often uh, get angry and give the worst fucking answers possible because I was very defensive. Um because there's no easy I, answers, but we want to give them and we want to receive them. But I, I totally empathize and sympathize with you. And 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 people like the the worst thing we could ever do is tell people they have no power. Um, but equally, this is what governments and companies do all the time. They think they they let you think that you have power. And this is what the environmental movement has been railing against, which was um. Uh, when, as they have raised over 40 years of campaigning against the systemic problems around, say, uh, well, bad behavior by companies and governments, the responses from companies is to tell people um, to pollute less, to recycle more, to almost make it feel like it's that they can do something about it. And it creates a sense of guilt that, oh, if I, gosh, if I'm not recycling, then maybe I really can't complain about the oil companies. Or if I'm looking forward to vacationing next year in some other part of the world and I want to fly, well, I can't get angry at my government for not doing X, Y, and Z around the Paris Agreement. And so it makes you feel like you're the sinner. And so how can I dare hold to account the more powerful? And that's what happens in the privacy world too, which is like, if you have the audacity to have a bank account and have to disclose all this information. You feel like, well, I, I guess I can't really complain about the government requiring this. Or if I use Google or if I use Facebook, I guess I can't really complain about the fact that I got to disclose my fingerprint in order to get into a country. And so you think it's choice, but it's, that's it, first of all, you're not really given a choice. Second of all, the choice layer is almost the immaterial layer because they're getting the data with and without your knowledge. I said without your knowledge or without your consent anyway. So it's just this huge injustice that's being perpetrated while they make you think that you have control, which is like the greatest charade the devil's ever pulled. But people can do things. To use an example, um, the WhatsApp story over the last week was all about what's up updating their privacy policy people reading it and getting angry so they started moving to other secure apps and the fact that this is a story is huge like i'm impressed that it's become such a big there's been such a huge reaction to the point where people are like the, the numbers are clear the number of people signing up to whatsapp has gone down the number of people who have signed up to these other apps has gone through the roof that's extraordinary but and and but whatsapp is saying look nothing's really changed this is this is awareness this has changed though awareness has changed but what whatsapp's also saying is like the changes people are angry about essentially took place in 2016. And so the awareness has changed. People are now saying, whoa, Facebook has access to this data. The story has changed. The story is out. 
yeah, the story is that it took, now if you told me in 2016, when I was angry that WhatsApp was giving this data to Facebook and I tried to get people to understand, nobody cared. Nobody could understand it. They didn't get their heads around it. They didn't understand that there was actually a breach of the agreement when the government, um, when WhatsApp was allowed to be bought by Facebook. There wasn't supposed to be this sharing, but two years later, the sharing took place, but there was no furore. In 2016, I'm banging my head against the table. If somebody had said, don't worry, Gus, in 2021, because of a change of a privacy policy that has no relation to this whatsoever, people will become extraordinarily outraged. I would say there's no fucking way. And lo and behold, it's happened. And that's beautiful. The, and the interesting thing is, and while I can dismiss outrage as an effective tool, what's really interesting is that WhatsApp is on the defensive now. And let's remember, WhatsApp is owned by Facebook. So Facebook's on the defensive now. Yeah. And if they do anything that moves in the direction of compromising user uh, privacy and security, they've been forewarned. They know that they're, they should be careful now. And other actors in the sector, I'm talking about Google predominantly and Apple, if they decide they wanted to start doing something a little bit more problematic, they're, uh, they've been warned. And interestingly, They've also been strengthened because we know governments have been pressuring WhatsApp and all these other companies to undermine security. And so it's really interesting that WhatsApp can now use this as an excuse saying to governments, hey, you saw what happened when we didn't even do anything problematic and we got torn to pieces. It's just not worth us. To we can't. We can't comply with what the Biden Department of Justice wants. And so that, that's interesting. So human action, human concern does matter. It's just, it's not enough. This is a, this is a, uh, this is a systems level war and we need systems level work. And that's why the bulk of what PI does, people don't understand. And I get it because it's hard. It's, it just doesn't make sense. Like, uh, something we're fighting can take five years to go through the courts and we might still might lose but it's the fight worth fighting because it starts unraveling some of the the infrastructure they've been building to garner all this intelligence and, and we can for hit you that's right an time. existential fight because if you lose one of those big fights it can literally destroy your organization yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's a it's a matter of life and death, kind of existential survival. Every time you have a five year old case being decided, uh, you know, it if it doesn't go your way, it could be literally putting you at risk of existence, uh, your future. And, and increasingly, these governments and companies are becoming more and more litigious, and so they're going to look for one little mistake any of us make. Yeah. And they're going to come after us and try to put us out in the way that Modi has been doing in India. This is this is a dark world for this for for a game of this stakes. Well, Gus, unfortunately, we are already four minutes above our time. So let me just ask you the last two questions that I usually ask. First of all, easy and quick, where can people find more about you and your work? So. Last year, I spent a large amount of my time personally being involved in redeveloping our website. So Privacy International's website is privacyinternational.org. And 
uh, I was personally involved because I needed somebody who had been working here for 20 odd years to try to figure out how to structure the storytelling over some of the issues that we work on, some of the campaigns we've run, some of the legal cases we've taken. And where I've struggled, going back to the very first question you, you, you've, you asked about victories, I'm, I, I'm starting, I, like part of the whole restructuring of everything that we're doing on their website is about st- telling the stories of when we've won and why those victories matter. Um, and what knock-on effects they're going to have. So our website is uh, is pretty much the the authoritative source on these types of things. And of course, we're on we're on Twitter. We're on I think we're on Facebook to some degree. But one of the things I'm impressed by when it comes to my colleagues' work is that for an organization of our size, we have quite a media presence. Um, a remarkable amount of media presence. So you will see our work in in the elite media and sectoral media and national media. And you'll also importantly see the work of our partners in national media and social media as well. And you can get access to all of our partners uh, from our website as well. Yeah, and one thing you can't see is uh, too many videos of you on YouTube or even the pictures uh, of the, the team on your website, and that's by design. It's not like random. Fortunately, we didn't have the chance to talk about this in further detail, but after a two-hour conversation with you today, what's the most important thing you want to send us away with? I am fundamentally optimistic about the future. That we We've been dumb in the past 20 years. A lot of stupid developments, just stupid. Like, I don't mean evil. I just mean stupid, well-meaning, but just stupid, insecure developments. Let's uh, let's make social a layer, uh, an infrastructure we can sell access to so that you end up with a Cambridge Analytica-like moment. Like, that's just stupid. It's just believing what some 20-year-old thinks the world should look like and, and, and allowing that individual to build that world and saying, oh, there'll never be anything dumb that happens as a result. And then something dumb happens. More fast We're than breaking, be... say. Yeah, exactly. We're not going to be that dumb going forward. We're getting better. And I'll use the example of um, in the current pandemic when the idea came up and it's a pretty dumb idea, if you ask me, uh, of using mobile phones to do contact tracing. So you can you can monitor, you can help people understand if they've been exposed uh, to COVID based on proximity reporting from your uh, from your device. What was really interesting about that whole debate, and I was uh, intimately involved because I was asked to join the ethics committee of the UK government's response. What was interesting is that. Um, Every government wanted to find a technological solution to a highly complex human health challenge. And a lot of dumb things came up. A lot of dumb ideas were deployed, and they mostly crashed and failed. But what was interesting was that if this was, and people draw the the analogy to 9-11, if this was 9-11, if this was 2001, we would have had the telephone companies because there was no Google and Apple in the way that they are now, we would have the telephone companies bending over backwards to provide data to governments. 
even though that the data would have been pointless, they would have bent over backwards to do so. That's what they did after 9-11. Instead, you had Apple and Google, and Google, I have nothing nice to say about when it comes to privacy. I have a lot of good things to say about them when it comes to security. When it comes to privacy, I have practically nothing nice to say about them. But those two companies, recognizing that this was a global challenge, they recognized that they couldn't bend over the way that uh, uh, telephone companies did after 9-11. And they also said, maybe this data isn't that useful, but let's see if we can make it useful, but not make it a surveillance system. And they even forced governments who wanted to build surveillance systems to recognize that they, they just couldn't get it to work. And so that's a huge step forward. That's a smarter world that we're building. Now, it's still a question as to whether or not that technology is an appropriate response to a pandemic in the sense that does it actually do what we hope it does. But at least it wasn't the dumb as nails response to 9-11 that we had. And I think, and that's why I'm optimistic about the future. That's just one example of how um, we're not letting dumb people make decisions that will result in death and destruction and oppression. They'll have to find other routes towards it uh, in the future, I hope. So we are getting better then, and we are not as dumb as we used to be, at least. So yeah, that hopefully would mean we are hopefully getting smarter in the end of the day. I, I do believe so, and I, I remain hopeful. Uh, and look, I know people are thinking that the, the winds of politics matter, and, they, and whatever leader I'm outraged about at this moment in time is going to stand in the way of that. But I will um, remind you that we've had a four-year debate around Chinese technology because of Donald Trump. Nobody would have foreseen that. And now we're asking what, like, you know, what, what values are embedded in a technology that we're deploying in our infrastructure that could be compromised by others. If I had asked the Obama administration to talk about that type of stuff, it would, not, would have gone nowhere. And if I'd asked the British government to talk about that stuff, they'd say it'd be national security secrets and they can't possibly talk about it. The discourse has changed as well, even by uh, people who we may not like, but the discourse has changed and I think we are ultimately getting better. Well, as you're saying, that's a very, very good place for us to leave. Thank you very much for being with us today on Singular. Thank you for having me. I'm such a fan. This is such a wonderful discussion too. Thank you, and uh, I, I agree it was wonderful. But I, 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 I always feel I could someone like you. First, I could have easily kept for double the time. Uh, secondly, I, I feel like I just didn't do a good job enough to highlight the important things to 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 like bring out the best in you. I always feel like a failure in the end in some ways. But but I really enjoyed it, and I hope others will too. Oh, I really enjoyed it too, and I, I look forward to hearing it and wondering what I ended up saying. Because I, I got to say, like, I've done a lot of these things, but I was definitely thinking on my toes. And I, I'm going to go back and try to figure out the definition to privacy I, I, I was developing here. Um, is it worth is it worth taking further? Because you've, you challenged me to think and want to speak differently and engage on these things differently rather than just be on the surface. This stuff is hard. Wow, thank you very much. I, I agree. This stuff is always hard, and this is what I'm actually trying to do. I'm trying to make us all think uh, and, and get to a new place, get to a symposium, so at the end of the day, 
we live with a little bit of a new insight after our drinking party. <laughs> <laughs> so, which is what a symposium used to be back in the day in ancient Greece. Uh, now we have this virtual, but but why not party? Why not the conversation? Why not like a informal thing where we can get to a new realm, to a new insight, to a new, to a little bit of progress, to a partial victory, as Ada Palmer yeah, says. Yeah, a partial victory, and and also importantly, and this is, um, it's it's probably one of the reasons why you don't see me on YouTube as much. Um, I I I am bored by the projection of our better selves. I'm bored of having the tidy, um, uh, tight narrative. And I, I want to have conversations where I can expose where I'm struggling, um, where I don't know. And, and, and I know it's, well, I, I might, I hope I came across as, as coherent, but I, I hope you understand the degree to which I had to think about every single word I was constructing. And that wasn't because I'm new to this issue. It's because I only want to have conversations about where I'm struggling to draw things together. Because otherwise, we're just doing soundbite after soundbite after soundbite. But exactly. That's, that's the whole point of my podcast. I want us to struggle because that's the only way we make progress, right? And that's why people ask me sometimes, look, you made a mistake, they say, here and here, and you could have easily edited this in post-production. Why didn't you do so? And my answer to that always has been, look, all people are mortal. Socrates is a person. Therefore, Socrates is mortal too. So yes, I can very easily edit myself, make myself look better, make everyone look better, make it very polished and highly marketable. But I don't want to do that. I want to give you the raw access to people. I want to give you the humanity. I want to show you their struggles. And I want to show you that we're not different first. But secondly, that's the price of progress is the struggle, is the pain. And that's where the reward lies, not making ourselves being good, being important on the internet, talking about important topics. It's more about how do we struggle together? How do we be vulnerable Exactly. and try to recognize the fact that we don't really know? You know, quite honestly, I've been doing this for 11 years on the podcast and maybe 17, 16, 17 years old together. I haven't gotten the first clue about what I want to do or say about AI in general and transhumanism. And I've only learned how clueless I am about all this after 17 years. And I have had so many occasions to notice my complete and utter failure in terms of personal philosophy even sometimes that's very important to me. Like even take stoic philosophy that's teaching us to be this, to never lose our cool. I was such an embarrassment about of, um, of myself just a few days ago on Christmas when I lost my temper at someone who is like a total Trumpist, somebody that I love very much and who loves me very much. And you would say, oh, it's okay. It happens to everyone. But it happened at twice in like five days. And that hasn't been the only two twi times in the last 17 years. It's been dozen times, probably at least half a dozen to a dozen times. And it goes to show me I haven't learned the most basic thing about Stoic philosophy even. After trying to learn it academically and to practice it in my life, I'm still like kind of like a failure in some sense. Because I could have handled it better and I didn't. And that's 
just but as you were just saying and I, and I really hate to, to to make it sound like advertising but um that's why we have we, we haven't done a good job of, of using it but when we we went through this whole process of trying to figure out figure out a pi um how do we project ourselves and we decided to focus on this idea that people should be free to be human and that is um if you go to our website that's actually the the tagline we use but we i like when we were going through that process i wanted i didn't want it to be about having the picture of the protester uh or or the human rights defender who might be under scrutiny and all that kind of stuff what i wanted was to articulate to people that it, you should be free to be human in all your vulnerability and all of your to, you should be free to make a mistake and the, and and the world shouldn't come crashing down on you as a result yeah and you're free to keep that mistake private uh, or you can disclose it if you want like i just did for example uh, and take responsibility for it hopefully hopefully learn from it hopefully avoid repeating it but that's your choice you're not forced to to deal with that mistake in the public sphere because you can choose to keep your mistakes private i'm just thinking oh my god if i was a teenager now today knowing all the mistakes and the stupidity i i've done in my life when I, when i was a teenager i was so blessed we didn't have any of this tech in bulgaria uh, especially and and so on i was so lucky now i don't even know how the kids do it today uh you know cuz i no one can see all my idiocy uh when i was a 17 year old kid you know yeah, yeah. so Absolutely. yeah Well, Bruce yeah. Hussein, I know you really have to run now. So yeah. once again, thank you thank very you. much. I actually really enjoyed the last part of being human of our conversation. So I would keep that on the record if you don't mind. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's that's everything I'm thinking of right now. And that's and even as you're talking about that very human response you just had over Christmas, I also see that or failure in my case. Yeah, but I I'm seeing it everywhere and it, like for for Londoners who are going through essentially their fourth lockdown. That's happening a lot more and I think there is this we're all becoming much more raw humans. Um and our refinements are coming off and it's okay. And we have to tell each other it's okay. And I've just had to tell my colleagues also, look, um we're all losing our cool every now and then and it's not about each other. It's just we're just losing our cool because we're humans. So uh yeah relish in that and it's it's forming the basis of everything I'm trying to think of now which is like let's be truly human and and treat each other as human and treat the systems we create as human and have the expect the responses we get to be human as well. So thank you. No thank you Gus. So what a wonderful message to to end up on and it's an again a place I never expected we would end up. Yeah, with. exactly. This is great. <laughs> That's the best part of the discovery of the symposium that we end up in a new realm, in a new area that we've never expected before. And and you know, this only works very rarely, but I think this was one of those cases. Oh, thank you for this opportunity. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes or you can simply make a donation. 